So um, I was struck this week by um, a, a repeated phrase within my Old Testament Bible readings, and that coupled with a, a book I've been reading over the past um, the past week or so, um, past couple of weeks, um, has been the basis of what we're going to look at this afternoon. Um, so first of all, let's look at the the phrase that struck me. I want to turn to um, I want to turn to um, a, a couple of passages from Isaiah. Um, starting in Isaiah chapter 44 and verse 6. Um, uh, Fraser, if you could put that up for people, that would be great. Isaiah um, chapter 44 and verse 6. And there we read, says, This is what the Lord says, Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me there is no God. Who then is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and lay out before me what has happened since I established my ancient people and what is yet to come. Yes, let them foretell what will come. Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? No, there is no other rock. I know not one. Let's go over to Isaiah 45 and verse 5, please. Isaiah 45 and verse 5. And there we read, I am the Lord and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you though you have not acknowledged me so that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, people may know there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. And then down to verse 18. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I have not spoken in secret from somewhere in a land of darkness. I have not said to Jacob's descendants, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Gather together and come. Assemble you fugitives from the nations. Ignorant are those who carry about idols of wood, who pray to gods that cannot save. Declare what is to be. Present it. Let them take counsel together. Who foretold this long ago? Who declared it from the distant past? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no God apart from me a righteous God and saviour. There is none but me. Turn to me and be saved, all ye, all ye ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Before me every knee will bow, by me every tongue will swear. They will say of me and the Lord alone, our deliverance and strength. All who have raged against him will come to him and be put to shame. But all the descendants of Israel will find deliverance in the Lord and will make their boast in him. Amen. So I was reading these um, chapters uh, this, uh, from Isaiah this week um, as part of my daily readings. And at the same time, I've been reading this book, um, uh, the Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer. And both of these have played a part in my message this afternoon. Um, as I've been reading through Is uh, Isaiah as a book, um, I've been struck 
Um, I've been struck by its structure. <laughs> My exceptionally uh, poor memory means that I'm not very good at noticing uh, big themes when I'm doing consecutive Bible study unless uh, I kind of take a step back from it because uh, I'm, just, <laughs> I'm just not very good at holding these things in my, my mind day to day. I, I don't see those themes. Um, uh, unless someone points out to me, it's one of these things. Um, I was speaking to um, I was speaking to Thomas Thomas last week about Lamentations, and that's always been a book that I find fascinating because of its structure. And I think there's a um, I think part of the whole meaning of the book of Lamentations is about the is conveyed in the structure of that book. You know those words that we re- that Thomas read um, last Sunday. That message of hope is right in the heart of the book of Lamentations. Right in the heart of Lamentations, it's preceded by awful descriptions of suffering. It's succeeded by awful descriptions of suffering. But in the heart of that book, right in the middle of it, at the very, you know, numerically middle point of that book, in the midst of all that suffering, there are these amazing promises of God. And so Lamentations is a, a book of amazing structure, and it's been one of those things that, um, that's always fascinated me about it. But when I've been, uh, when I've been reading, uh, as I've been reading through Isaiah, that's, that's one of the things I've, I've noticed this time. And I think it was brought to my attention that Isaiah, as a book, has, a very, has quite a defined structure as well. And you don't, um, I think I've kind of noticed elements of that because there's, a, there's some chapters within Isaiah that, uh, that kind of strike you by surprise because they're completely different in tone. Um, and right in the middle of Isaiah, again, in um, chapters um, 36 and 39, those are very different chapters from the rest of the, the chapters within the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is a book of prophecy, and it's a prophecy that Isaiah gives as a collection of poems and songs and woes, and it's full of very lyrical language and lots of imagery and lots of ways of conveying some of the amazing things that Isaiah has seen in visions and some of the ways that he wants to convey that. But right in the middle of Isaiah, there's these three chapters, chapters 36 through 39, that are pure history. You come across those chapters and it's like you're like, oh, wait a minute, this seems very familiar from what we read, the, the type, of, uh, type of verses we read in uh, the books of Kings and the books of Chronicles. You know, it's talking about these are the events that happened in a particular king, uh, King Hezekiah's life. And, and you go from this very poetical uh, book to this very historical book. And right in the middle of Isaiah, there's these chapters about what happens to Hezekiah. And as I looked into that and why this passage exists here, I found that um, it is a deliberate feature of the overall book of Isaiah. And Isaiah, as a book, is split in two by this historical passage. You have the preceding chapters, which, um, which are described as the book of judgment. The, the preceding chapters, um, around about chapters 30, um, 36 through 39, These are a book of judgment, and during these chapters, Isaiah details a number of prophecies that have been given to him by the Lord, detailing judgments that are about to unfold against Judah, against Israel, against the surrounding nations, and against the powers behind those surrounding nations. And it's set 
all those chapters are set against a backdrop of the kingdom of Judah as a political power dwindling away. And it's a time when um, there are regional kind of superpowers developing. There's the Assyrian there's the Assyrian nation is rising in power off to the east and it threatens to sweep in and destroy Judah. And it's a time when in response to that threat, the kingdom of Israel to the north has turned their attention and started making plans about how on earth are we going to survive the coming Assyrians. They reach out to other nations around them, the Arameans, and they make an alliance with the Arameans to protect themselves against Assyria. And as part of that, they start putting lots and lots of pressure upon the kingdom of Judah to join this alliance, join with us against the Assyrians. And the Assyrian threat against Judah culminates in Jerusalem coming under siege by the Assyrian army, and it's the army of the Assyrian king called Sennacherib. And he, it's all detailed in chapter 36, what Sennacherib's, um, how Sennacherib um, besieges um, Jerusalem. And Assyria, um, as, as that's going on, Assyria outrightly mocks the Lord's ability to save his people. They shout to the people from um, outside Jerusalem, they shout to them in Hebrew saying, do you want the people within Jerusalem to hear their accusation? Do you believe that God can save you? He said, all the other nations that we've conquered, their gods could do nothing. And your God can do nothing in the face of the power of Sennacherib. And Assyria mocks the Lord's ability to um, protect his people. And Hezekiah, the king that we read about in these three chapters, he calls for a time of national mourning and fasting. And he brings these taunts that have been leveled against God's name before the Lord in prayer. And the Lord causes Sennacherib to withdraw his armies. But as they withdraw, they give a parting shot and essentially say, we are coming back. Don't think this is the last that you've heard of us. We will come back. There is no protection here. We will be back and we will destroy you. And they demand Jerusalem surrender. And Hezekiah once again brings that demand before the Lord. And the Lord responds devastatingly against the armies of Assyria. In one night, he destroys hundreds of thousands of them. And he destroys the hosts of Sennacherib's army. And then Sennacherib himself is assassinated by his, own, by his own followers. And the Lord's victory over the powers of Assyria is an amazing deliverance for the kingdom of Judah. And then the following chapter within this kind of middle historical section within Isaiah talks about a personal crisis in Hezekiah's life. He comes from that and immediately we're into a story about Hezekiah and he becomes sick. He becomes sick to the point of death. In fact, Isaiah comes and says, get your house in order. You're going to die. And Hezekiah once again brings this before the Lord. He brings it before him and in sincere and heartfelt prayer, he pours out 
to God. Just this complaint and this petition about the situation that he finds himself in and the Lord gives him healing and it's and he makes this promise that his life is going to be extended by 15 years. And it's an amazing cap- couple of chapters. And in it, Hezekiah seems to be on a roll. You know, going from massive victory against the Assyrians, personal triumph over this, this um, illness that's threatened to do him. He's been faithful. And then it ends, this, this section ends on this strange story of some Babylonian envoys coming to visit Hezekiah. The Babylonians were another powerful nation in the region, and Hezekiah welcomes these important, um, these important officials, and he, he welcomes them warmly, and he seeks to impress upon them the wealth of his treasuries, and I'm not sure, I'm not sure the Bible doesn't talk about what his motivations are. It notes that he is very pleased to see them, and I'm not sure if he looks and sees in Babylon, we might have someone who can help us continue to resist the Assyrians. But this passage, after Hezekiah has welcomed these Babylonian emissaries into his treasuries and shown them everything, the passage ends with Isaiah turning around and giving this prophecy against them, and a prophecy against Judah, and he says, this Babylon that you've just shown all your treasuries, they're going to come and take every single thing that you've shown them, and your descendants are going to come, be taken away and captive, and they're going to be led into exile, and that's what Babylon's going to do. And it is, that's, that's what happens historically. It's, the Bab- it's not the Assyrians, it's the Babylonians who come in, and within less, a span of less than 100 years, it's those that have come in and swept through Judah and carried off everything to Babylon in exile. And the fall of Jerusalem and the exile of the people into Babylon was a, it's a theme of many of the prophets that we have recorded in the Old Testament. It's a traumatic event. But Isaiah's, there is another strange feature about Isaiah, which is Isaiah does not then move into a detailed description of how awful this exile is going to be. Does not do it. He says to Hezekiah, Hezekiah, this is coming. Everything's going to be carried away. Jeremiah has all these visions about how awful the exile is going to be. About how it's going to be a time of mourning and suffering for the people. But following this prophecy of exile, Isaiah moves into the next section of the book of Isaiah. We had, firstly, the book of Judgment. And then we had these chapters of history. And then Isaiah, the book of Isaiah moves into a completely different section. And this section, the last chapters of Isaiah from verse, from chapter 39 onwards, or chapter 40 onwards, are known as the book of comfort. Isaiah moves, Isaiah leapfrogs over the horror, horror of the fall of Jerusalem and the exile. And even though he's just given this prophecy, he immediately moves into a prophecy of how God is going to restore his people. He leaps right across the trial that they're going to do and his eyes immediately go to the fact that this is not going to be the end for, this is not going to be the end for Judah. 
God has a plan to restore you. And so the next part, all the rest of Isaiah are this book of comfort. And the passage you read today comes from the, the, the few opening chapters within this book of comfort. The very first book, the very first verses of this book of comfort in chapter 40 read, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. And that is the intention of the prophecies given within this section. And we're familiar, of course, with the latter half of Isaiah because that's because of the prophecies of the suffering servant that we read there. That, you know, our, attention on a, our attention on a Sunday morning is often taken to those chapters within that section of Isaiah. And we can see how this prophecy of the promised deliverer, the Messiah, who would be God's servant, that he would use to rescue his people would, of course, be of a comfort to his people. But that's not the part that grabbed my attention this week when I was reading it. What I was reading, what I was struck with as I read um, through these, um, these early chapters, in the kind of early 40s, was this phrase, I am the Lord and there is no other. Over that kind of span of chapter 43, 44, 45, the Lord says that phrase 10 times in this book of comfort. That is his his repeated phrase, his repeated refrain to his people. I am the Lord and there is no other. These chapters focus on the comfort that God's people can derive from consideration and knowing the Lord's person and being. This book, this book here that I've been reading was focused on a study of who the Lord is and what he is, what is he like and what are his attributes. And I think because I was reading them both at the same time, I noticed loads of uh, parallels in these chapters and the points that Tozer's making in that book. And in our remaining um, time this afternoon, I want to look at a few of these attributes that are highlighted in these chapters. And as I believe that the message that the Lord has given me and been impressing on my heart over this week is that he is my comfort. The Lord himself is my comfort. Not the amazing gifts and blessings he pours into my life. Those are just an expression of who he is. But our comfort is the Lord himself. Our comfort is the Lord himself and who he is and what he is like. When we think rightly about those things, we are comforted. So let's look at a few of these. Let's look at a few of these verses. Firstly, in the section that we read in Isaiah chapter 44 and verse 6, we read there that it says, this is what the Lord says, Israel's king and redeemer. The Lord Almighty. Now we've been singing. We've been singing that. Um, we've been singing that chorus with the kids that we learned at camp. And so this phrase, "The Lord Almighty," is something that has been on our hearts recently. But I wanted to think on the fact here that in this passage and in so many other passages within the Scripture, we we recognise this title that the Lord applies to Himself, the Lord. Almighty. And that phrase, 
Almighty. I think because I'm so familiar with it, I kind of skip over it. That is a title of God. But I want us to think, think this afternoon about what God is saying about himself. We hear descriptions, and we're familiar, and when the kids are at Good News Club, they hear descriptions about God as omnipotent. Omnipotent. And we describe that what God that means is he has all the power. But this phrase, the Lord Almighty, is exactly the same thought. Exactly the same thought. He has all the might. The Lord describes himself in this way. He says, I am all-powerful. I am omnipotent. The Bible does not, does not say that God is very strong. The Bible does not say that God is very powerful. It does not say that at all. And that thought is not right. God is not very strong. God is not very powerful. God is all-powerful. Our God has all the power. He has all the might. He is the origin of all things in this universe. Think about what that means. Think about what that means. When God spoke and this universe with all its power, with the burning stars, with the black holes that are beyond our comprehension, when God spoke and created all those things, where did that power come from? Where did it come from? The power came from the Lord. And think of this. Did God become weaker when he did that? Did God lose some of his strength when he created those things? Did part of his strength get taken from him and put into the strength of stars and the power of gravity and the speed of light? Did God lose anything of his power when those things happened? No, he did not. Our God remains all-powerful. And the creation that we see around us is just a facet of the inexhaustible power of our God. All things, that's another thing that we've been singing with the kids. All things are upheld by his power. There is no power in the universe that is outside of his power. There's no independent source of power. It is all coming from our God. The Lord is not like us in this way. He does not have a finite amount of power that he can spend and then be exhausted. Isaiah starts this book of comfort in that first chapter, in chapter 40 of it. He says this, Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary. When the Lord, whenever God exerts his power to fulfill his will, power does not drain out of him. He is the Lord Almighty. He acts in power and he always remains all-powerful. There is absolutely nothing beyond the Lord's ability to do. 
the entire universe is constantly kept in existence by his power. The laws of nature that cause planets to spin and orbit and stars to burn are not outside the power of the Lord, but in fact the outworking of God's power in the universe. Gravity is an expression of the Lord's power at work in the universe along with all the other laws of nature. That's where they originate from. That's why there is a law of gravity. It is the expression of his power. Let's take a look next at the Lord's description of himself in the following verse, right? He says, I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. And this title that the Lord applies to himself, the first and the last, is of course familiar to us. In fact, we thought about it this morning, didn't we? When we, were doing, when we had a breaking of bread. It's a, it's a phrase that we're familiar with, I think more often from this other context in the book of Revelation, it is a title that Jesus applies to himself. At the end of the book of Revelation, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And of course, there is absolutely no discrepancy here between the application to our Lord Jesus and its application here in Isaiah to the Lord Almighty. Why is there no conflict there? Because our Lord is one, and they are one. Our Lord Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, is co-equal with the Father and co-equal with the Spirit. Our God is one. And these terms are applicable to all three. When the Lord Almighty says, I am the first and the last, and the Lord Jesus says, I am the first and the last, they are pointing to the, they are pointing to the truth that we have discovered within the New Testament, that our God is three in one. He is Father, He is Son, He is Holy Spirit. And so these terms that we, these attributes of God that we think of and we see written down in Isaiah apply to God the Father and they apply to God the Son and they apply to God the Holy Spirit. Our God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit are eternal and everlasting. I am the first and I am the last. I am the beginning and the end. Our God exists outside of time. Seeing the beginning, seeing the present, seeing the end. They see all these things laid out in front of them. Time they are not subject or changed by time like we are. And this is an amazing comfort to us. Our God, who has demonstrated the extent of his love for us, he has seen and continually sees before him the short span of our lives and knows every single moment. He has known them all since before the earth was created. 
our God is self-sufficient. When we look around, the creation that we can see with our eyes and hear with our ears and experience, a common theme is that everything we see came from something else, isn't it? Everything we see came from something else. Everything had an origin. Everything has its end. Every year we see the seasons coming and the plants grow up and the plants die and last year's plants become food for next year's plants and everything continues and everything. We see that pattern again and again and again, even in the rocks, even in the mountains. They rise up and they fall. Nothing that we encounter in this world is permanent. You know, even the most stupid of examples that springs to mind, the co-op building in Darville, right? We just saw it knocked down and we, were, we drove up with the kids and we watched, this, we watched this big digger just knock it away. And we think of things like buildings as permanent and stable and they're nothing. And it's just a tiny, stupid example of the fact that our entire world is like that. Nothing that we see in this world lasts forever. Everything had a a beginning. Everything had an end, but not our God. Not our God. He has always existed. In fact, he is the only uncreated. He has no beginning. His existence is eternal. Isn't that an amazing thought? Let's move on to verse 7. It says there, What has happened since I established my ancient people? And what is yet to come? Yes, let them foretell what will come. I think I touched on this this morning when I was speaking earlier. Our God, our God is the author. Our God is the one who has written the history of his creation and the Bible tells us that he will, bring, he will bring his plans to fruition. And this is, an, this is a difficult thing for us, to, for us to comprehend. How will our God accomplish what he set out to accomplish when there's human beings wreaking havoc in his world? Our God knows what will happen and what will come to pass even in the context of the free will of, men, free will of man. Even though we are free to make choices for our own behalf and even though that freedom is scaled across the billions of people living on our planet, even with all those differing wills, all pulling in different directions and all as a race pulling against the will of God, even in spite of all these things, God, through his wisdom, brings all of this into concert with his plans. This is what we think of when we think of the wisdom of our God, because he is the one who is able to weave the times, all the times, and all our circumstances, and he is able to bring them into what he has planned and willed and ordained for us. He is like a master craftsman. This idea of wisdom is 
closely related to skill, is closely related to that kind of knowledge that is able by amazing ability to weave this what seems, seems like noise and chaos into something beautiful. That is what our God is doing through his creation. He's the one who can say, everyone else, tell me what's going to happen. Tell me your predictions about how this world is going to turn out. That's what he does in this chapter. Isaiah's quite Isaiah has passages that almost seem sarcastic, but they're laden with irony anyway. Let's put it that way. Where God turns and says, will you show me all your idols that you've taken and chopped a log in half and made one half to be an idol and the other half to cook your dinner? You know, that's what Isaiah says. He says, oh, you guys, you've got hundreds of idols. You tell me what's going to happen. No one can tell the end from the beginning. No one other than our Lord because he is the always wise one who no matter how broken the threads seem to us, he twists them together into making this garment that is beautiful. That is his wisdom in operation. That is a comfort for us. It's a comfort for me. That no matter how broken that looks like, no matter how much I think I have messed things up, God can never make this right. How can he restore me? How can he restore me to the amazing blessings that he had in, play, in plan for me because I have made such a mess of things? But our God is always wise. Is this beyond his control? Is this beyond his skill? It is not. Be comforted because our God is the God who is all wise. Let's spool forward a little bit into Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 7. He says there, Isaiah 45 and verse 7 says, I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. And then later in that same chapter, in Isaiah 45 and verse 23, he says, By myself I have sworn. My mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked before me. Every knee will bow. By me, every tongue will swear. Our God is sovereign. There is no corner of this vast universe that is beyond our God's authority. Not one corner. Not one space. All of it is under the authority of our God. He is sovereign over all, and by his power and his wisdom, he will bring all of creation to acknowledge his sovereignty. There is no authority that can overturn the will of God. You know, I'm not... Brexit is a mess and all that, but you just look at the... The person with, you'd think, the most authority in the land, the Prime Minister, who, even in his declarations of what he wants, and he makes no bones about what he wants, but he does not have the power to enact these things because even he is subject to another authority. Even he has rules that he must follow, but 
There's no, there's an, you know, when it comes to our Lord, there is no authority that can overturn his will. There is no court of appeal that he has to be subject to. He reigns supreme, and by his decrees, the universe was established and is sustained. He is the one who forms the light. He said, let there be light. And because he is sovereign, there was light. We serve, our God, the one we serve is the sovereign God. His will be done and none can stand against it. There is no way for another power to go and recourse that God must explain himself to. But when God wills it, it will happen because our God is sovereign. Lastly, I want to just look at the previous two verses in chapter 45, in verses 21 and 22. And it says there, And there is no God apart from me, a righteous God and a saviour. There is none but me. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. We've thought of some amazing, we've thought of some amazing concepts about our God this afternoon. And yet, these attributes that God describes here, I think, have a, this is our solo in heaven's praise. Our God is merciful and just. You know, our God is the righteous God. That's how he describes himself. There's no God apart from me. A righteous God. Our God is the source of all moral law in the universe. He is the source of equity and justice. It flows from him to his creation because he is righteous and just. You know, our God, and I think often I've thought this, our God is not righteous because he perfectly follows some rules of conduct that are external to him. There is not a standard that God looks to and says, I am righteous because I do this better than you. That is not why God is righteous. There is no source of moral purity in this universe beyond our God. Our God is righteous. Sorry. It's rather the opposite, that there is a law of moral purity in this universe because, because our creator is just and right. That's why there's justice and righteousness in creation. Because God himself is justice and is righteousness. Our God is the one that cannot tolerate inequity. He is the one who all sin and all unfairness and all evil in this world will be dealt with and reconciled and made right. He will right every single wrong because he is righteous. 
He is righteous. And that's an amazing thought. But God, in the same verses, in these same verses, He is the righteous God. But He is a Savior. There is no God apart from me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none but me. At the same time, He is the merciful and gracious God. He is the one who says, Turn to me and be saved. We are the objects of his mercy and grace through our Lord Jesus. He's displayed to all of creation that he is merciful and he is gracious by how he has treated us. And he's also displayed that he is the God who can at the same time be both just and righteous and deal with sin and resolve all the evils in the world and at the same time still be merciful and gracious to a sinner like me. Our God is one. He's not sometimes just and he's not sometimes merciful. He's not sometimes gracious and sometimes righteous. He never ever sets any of these attributes aside. He doesn't turn down a dial and turn a blind eye. He is always and forever perfectly righteous. He never tolerates iniquity. And he is always and forever perfectly merciful and gracious to those who turn to him. And he's done all of these things through our precious Lord Jesus. Through our Lord Jesus, it's in him that all the demands of God's righteousness and justice were met. And it's through our Lord Jesus who at the exact same moment also poured into the world the mercy and the grace of God that flowed to you and me. In studying these things, I have found them personally to be a comfort, which is what God intended them to be, right? When we are facing trials and desert times, God says, Turn to me because I am the God of comfort and the God of all comfort. We need to seek his face to see what he is in his glory and in looking upon him, he will lift up our heads from our temporary trials and fill our minds with awe and wonder at his amazing person. We are going to spend eternity Adoring him for who he is. And it will not grow old. Our minds cannot comprehend what that means. I think you get to it and you think, surely there's, surely, but what what happens after that, right? But that is not going to be our experience when we see our God unveiled. It's just not going to be there. That's not 
that thought will not occur to us when we see God in, our infinitude, in his infinitude and his eternity and his beauty and his perfection. We will spend that eternity adoring him. But in studying and looking upon our God as he reveals himself in his Son, the Lord Jesus, as recorded in the scriptures and through the words of the prophets, in looking upon him, we can experience that heavenly joy in this world too. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I have not spoken in secret from somewhere in a land of darkness. I have not said to Jacob's descendants, seek me in vain, sorry. He has not said to us, seek me in vain. We've been thinking as a church about seeking the face of the Lord, about looking for him. This verse struck me as just an amazing hope for us as a church. God has not said, seek me in vain. God has not said, seek me in vain. He desires us to seek his face and be filled with wonder over the person of our God. He is the Lord and there is no other. He is the Lord and there is no other. Let's commit to knowing him better in our lives. Because that is his will for us and that's where our joy and our peace and our satisfaction come from in knowing our God. It's because God desires us to know him that he reached out to us in the person of our Lord Jesus. God with us, our Emmanuel, he drew near to us so that we could know him. This unapproachable God who dwells in light and is an unapproachable light. That's what we were saying earlier, wasn't it? Dwells unapproachable in light who is invisible. How can we approach a God like that? God approaches us in the person of our Lord Jesus so that we can know him and forever be amazed by him. He is the Lord and there is no other. I heartily recommend this book to you guys. If you have not read it, I know I'm standing holding a Christian classic and turn around and saying you should read this and probably everyone else has read it apart from me, but It is an amazing study in the person of our God. And this does not happen to me often, but this book and the thought about who our God literally brought me to my knees reading this because our God is perfect and he is beautiful and he desires us to know him. He is the Lord and there's no other. That is our God. The God of our Lord Jesus. The God who is our Father. Let's let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we worship you in the splendor of your majesty. We acknowledge that you are truly above all others. There is no one who even approaches you in splendor. And we confess, Father God, that so often we are content with the vision of God that we experienced 
once before, but we thank you, Father God, that in you is depths that we will never plumb. We can fall into the pers- your person and look upon your face, and in doing so, we are looking upon eternity itself. There is no end to your beauty and glory. Father God, forgive our inadequate words as we try to declare who you are. Father God, we seek to honor you with our lives and in face of such grandeur, it seems that we are so insignificant and so unworthy of the task, but we thank you that you in your wisdom have ordained that you should use people like us to bring praise to your name. And so with what strength you have given us, we lift up our voices to say, you are worthy, Father. You are worthy, Son. You are worthy, Spirit, to receive all of our praise and all of our worship. We We pray, Father God, that you would Cause us to serve you and follow you better. Cause us to know you better. Cause us to love you with all our heart and strength and mind. Let us hold nothing back, but let us abandon ourselves to the oceans of your love, Father God. We pray all these things in the name of our blessed Lord Jesus. Amen.